Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Echo Podcast. Just to introduce myself and my co-host, I'm Ravan, and this is my co-host, Sunny. Hello. And today, we are joined by a very special guest, UNSW's very own Hayden Smith. I'll let him introduce himself. Yeah, hi everyone. Um, nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, my name's Hayden. I, In the context of this interview, I guess I'm a casual academic at UNSW, and I uh, do some casual lecturing here. Uh, we're just here to give just to give the audience and the listeners a better idea of who you are and who you are within the UNSW community. So let's jump into maybe go back to the start and see, was computer programming something you've always been interested in or how'd you get into that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think, so if I jump back, I was probably about 14 or 15 and I was just another one of those kids that generally liked maths and science, but didn't really care much for English, found it kind of painful. Um, and that was, that was all that really defined my future at that point. Uh, I grew up a lot in regional New South Wales, so a town of like 20,000 people. Um, and no one really talks about your career there. Like you kind of get to the last week of your HSC and then people are like, what are you going to do now? And they're like, yeah. oh, maybe I'll do this. Um, and then half the people don't do anything. But I originally got interested in programming because I used to play a lot of video games as a kid um, before I tried to spend my time elsewhere doing more productive things, I guess. Um, and I was on a whole bunch of online forums um, talking to people, you know, like, oh, a new video game came out, let's chat about it on a forum. And I ended up talking to um, someone who helped me learn programming. It was just a guy on a disability pension from Adelaide that was just on the forum and was like, let me teach you some PHP. I was like, cool, like a 15-year-old on the internet. Um, and he taught me that, and I thought it was really cool, and I programmed for a couple of years doing web development. Um, and then for the next couple of years, throughout year 11 and 12, I probably spent a lot of time thinking about mechanical engineering and other kinds uh -huh. of engineering, like just really interested in classical engineering. And then it was probably just towards the end of year 12, and I was like, yeah, I still like that software stuff. Maybe I should go do software kinds of engineering. So what was the reason for the interest in mechanical engineering and then the shift to software engineering was it just personal interest uh yeah i don't i don't quite remember the specifics i mean i guess like software is cool but i think any self-respecting young child's going to be excited by big bridges and flying planes yeah. like that's a lot cooler than a mobile app that counts yeah. how many strawberries exist in the world you know or something strange um and I think it kind of started to spark me again around the middle of year 12. I helped a friend out. So there was this company in Melbourne who modded gaming consoles. It was just a right. friend called Ryan that I knew from a while ago. And he was like, oh, I have this problem where every day I have to, I, people buy stuff on my website with credit cards. And I send half the credit card to my email and half to a database, just like an SQL database. And he's like, well, I have to spend an hour every day like copying and pasting it together. He's like, can you help me out with that? So. I just wrote like a PHP script. It took me a couple hours and he's like, I'll give you a hundred bucks for it. And I was like, money, <laughs> money, money. Um, and it just like did it automatically. And I realized that I'd saved him like an hour a day um, of his life that he could spend with his like family and um, yeah. children if he had any, I don't really yeah. know. Uh, but I was like, God, that was cool because we didn't, we didn't have to, like a lot of engineering is taking resources and reshifting them somewhere else right like you build a bike you get some steel you put it elsewhere but it was so cool that you'd had an impact on someone's life with essentially no input yeah. except like 
thinking, right? You just like right. plug it into a computer. So I was like, that's really cool. And I think that kind of stuff started to make me think, actually, there is a lot of impact you can do on the software end. So I think it was just that realization that you can have still large impact. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, was there, so I know that you did computer science at UNSW. Was there any reason that you chose computer science? Um, why not do it in a double? Why not do a degree such as software engineering? Was there any specific reason why you chose computer science? Yeah, I, I mean, I think for me in particular, it was the fact that I applied for co-op scholarships and rural scholarships, um, and I got offered some on both ends, and I was somewhat constrained originally by that. Like, I didn't go in thinking, I've got 27 choices. I went in being like, I need the money to move out of home because otherwise I can't right. go to university, and here's what they offered. Um, and I think I really wanted to do robotics at the start before I realized yeah. how broken the mechatronics degree used to be. Um, so I really wanted to do mechatronics and computer science. Um, and that's kind of where I started because I wanted to do both. And uh, I ended up disliking the mechatronics. When they create these like hybrid degrees, and I think you saw it, you see sometimes with renewable, is it's very difficult to have a new school just appear out of nowhere, like a yeah. new like school of mechatronic engineering. So mm -hmm. a school has to own it. And if a school has to own it, it's going to fork off their current degrees. So the original mechatronics degree was largely a mechanical engineering degree. I think the first two and a half years were common, like two and a half years were common. And then it was like there was a couple of electives at the end. So you kind of came out with like you're a mechanical engineer with a little bit of knowledge of electrical and a little bit of software knowledge. But you would not get hired as an electrical engineer or software engineer with just those skills. It was just too minimal. Um, they've slowly tried to fix that up. Like, oops, um, like back in the day, 1511 was not part of the mechatronic degree. You just didn't do it. You did like Eng 1811 or something. Or was that the engine, like the programming for engineers course? Yeah, yeah. So it was just, it hadn't yet adapted to the fact that we need to round out the skills across all three disciplines that the degree is meant to be about. Yeah. Just on that, do you think it's like good that like Comp One Five One One is a mandatory course for more engineers, like now? Uh, I think so. I, I mean, I I've taught Comp One Nine One One myself. Like that's a course I lectured in twenty nineteen, and I helped course admin it this year. And it's basically One Five One One without link lists, and you don't expect the students to want to spend their weekends doing it. I think that there should be more engineers who, it's not that that's a bad thing, it just suits certain students, but I think more engineers should be doing one of those two courses for sure. Because um, those basics of programming pervade nearly everything. Yeah. Um, I think from my limited experience, it's like 1511 is really helpful for people that want to enjoy it. You know, not just like I want to develop a skill. Like for me personally, right, I want to learn about thermodynamics as much as I need and then move on with my life to other things I'm interested in. Um, so I think that more students should maybe be doing better, Jesus, better programming courses. Um, but, you know, 1511, it would depend on their interest levels, I think. How was your time at university, let's say? How was it? Yeah. Generally? Yeah, just generally. I spent the first two years at New College, which is one of the residential campuses. Uh, I don't even know what they're called anymore, residential thingies. Um, that was okay. I didn't really associate much with like the broader CSE community because there was a whole bunch of computer scientists at college, right? Yeah. So like we hung out together um, and that was okay. I mainly spent, I didn't really do much in my first two years, honestly. I just like played table tennis, watched YouTube, went to class, let my wham drop. Um, and then I spent the next few years pretty heavily engrossed in student projects. Um, 
So ironically, a lot of my interaction with the CSE community came after I graduated. So I know that during your time at university, you were involved with SunSwift, which is a student-run UNSW team that is trying to build a road legal solar car. And I know that you were the project and technical manager. Could you let me know on what that really means and what your role was? Decisions were dealt with through me as well. So we essentially kind of have these different pillars of the team where we used to in later years, which is like you have your operations and your technical aspects, and then you have your overall leadership and your business side as well. Um, and for 2014 and 15, I kind of oversaw everything except the business side. Um, so it's pretty involved. And then in later years, I did a little bit less. And um, I know that your car broke, I think it was a world record. Um, how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's, it's like one of these things where we, I would say like our, the team's a funny thing because we broke a world record with a car that we didn't build. Um, like, you know, we like kind of inherited it. But at the same time, you know, in 2018, a world record was broken with a different team with a car we built. So there's a very broad sense of sharing amongst all this. Um, but yeah, so in 2015, we, we had a car. It was called Eve. It was the fifth car. And we said, uh, this thing's pretty efficient. Um, what world record can we break? We didn't want to break a Guinness world record because it wasn't that exciting for us at the time and it didn't seem like the best option. So we broke like an FIA world record, which is like the international body that runs all racing, like Formula One, Formula Three. Uh, and we took the car down to Victoria and we essentially drove it in a loop for 500 kilometers um, as fast as we could to, um, I think it was an average speed over a distance record. So I think the, the layman's term we used was it's the fastest long range electric vehicle was the record. On paper it was the, the fastest electric vehicle over a 500 kilometer distance in a weight class under a ton or something like that. Um, but we broke it, I think, at 107 um, kilometers an hour on average. Um, and the previous record, I think, was like 76. Was that 107 throughout the whole 500 kilometers? So it was 115 we averaged. That was our target speed the whole race, the whole series of loops. Um, but it... Uh, we had to stop twice to change drivers and tires, so that knocked the average down. How much pressure were you under, like, during your time at, like, working at SunSwift? Because you were just out of uni, like, just only a few years, like, after you graduated. Were you under a lot of pressure, or were you, like, confident in, like, you and your team? Yeah, so my time in SunSwift, I started getting involved with that in 2014. So that was in my, that was in my third year. So it was, like, first, second year, I didn't do much. A little bit of a lazy bum. And then third, fourth, fifth, and even sixth year, I spent a lot of time with SunSwift. And I'd say, I mean, it was a fair bit of pressure um, because... Like, the scale of the project's pretty big, firstly. You know, you've got everything from marketing engines to... It's probably, like, one of the biggest, at least at the time, one of the biggest, if not, like, the biggest sense of a society on campus, right? Like, we had 70 team members, and about 25 of those were effectively spending 40, 50 hours a week doing stuff. So um, it's pretty much another subject at this point, yeah. Yeah, and that was what motivated UNSW to do their best attempt to, um, you know, integrate it more into the curriculum, but... I'd say, like, the amount of pressure mainly came from the breadth of the project, as I said. Like, you've got, like, you're organizing events and booking cars and writing risk assessments and trying to design yeah. things and get them reviewed and get them built and get them ordered and manufactured and shipped. Like, it's just a very complex thing. But probably the main pressure just came from 
the risk involved. Um, it's a ludicrously dangerous thing what happens. You know, like I've driven, I've driven with this team across now. It must be like two races plus a world record plus this is probably like around 30,000 kilometers. Sorry, but you're driven. Do you mean like you were actually driving the car or was it? I avoided driving the car because I didn't oh, want to yeah. die um, <laughs> until, until 2018 where I finally said, screw it, let's, let's, let's go out in style. Um, so like we just drive around the country, like, you know, 2014 was a world record, 2015 was a solo car race, 2016 was a school trip, 2017 was a solo car race, and 2018 we drove from Perth to Sydney for another world record, right? Yeah. Um, and the biggest, just to, I guess, tie off the last question, the most pressure is definitely the fact that you can and will kill people all the time. You know, like you're driving, you're driving an experimental vehicle at like 80 kilometers an hour, sometimes with four people in it, designed by students and built by students half the time. And all you need is a pin to come out or a bolt and suddenly a wheel comes off and then people are careening into trees and dying, you know what I mean? So you're in a constant state of like, every decision you make will have an impact on whether or not people that you care about like literally die. Yeah. Um, and that was probably the, the biggest pressure involved. But in terms of actually driving the car, no, I didn't, I didn't want to drive it because driving the solar car is actually an extremely unautonomous thing. Like you're not like, you're not the hero on the road. You know, you're not like, you're actually like told specifically what to do. It's a very controlled thing. And at those times I was in the team because of how involved I was and where I was in the team, it was a lot better suited for me to be, I guess, at a high level helping operate things rather than sit in the car. But in 2018, after I'd left the team, because I left the team around the middle or end of 2017, I, um, I, I helped the next team out by being one of their drivers for their um, transcontinental record. So the 2018, 2018 team drove from Perth to Sydney to a break, I think it was like in energy usage record. I don't even know, to be honest, what it was. Um, but they flew me and another few people to Perth to help drive the car. Just as a slight tangent, um, I know you brought up uh, how you gained a lot of the business side of um, engineering when you like undertook SunSwift. Um, how important do you think it is for people in computer science to understand that at the end of the day, they're gonna be probably programming for a business context? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that I think that the things I learned from SunSwift would there's very specific things I learned there. I learned a lot about marketing and yeah. PR, and I learned a lot about managing relationships. Um, you know, how, how do you how do you like how do you manage corporate relationships? Like, how do you send emails? How do you call people and talk to them? And what what is good on a poster? What's appropriate? What's going to bite you in the ass and stuff like that? Um, is that word okay? Um, yeah, sure yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, we're not gonna. And students, students always give me my experience feedback, which is like he swears too much, and I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think those skills are good. But in all honesty, the the main thing I learned from Zunswift was probably just leadership and management. I think most any business-ish engineering skills probably came from startup land afterwards. Um, yeah. I don't think student projects are that great to to make you a good business leader, if that makes sense. Do aspects you, aspects of, it. of it. Do you think that programmers nowadays need to have those leadership and management skills to be successful in the workplace? Especially, Especially yeah, with a lot of pressure on like oh, Facebook or like Uber. Like this, it's an age very much of like tech startups. Yeah, yeah just relating on that. Um, question was, is a business skills critical? Yeah, are they critical for someone maybe 
yeah, for a student who's looking to find work, maybe after, just after they graduate, do you think those skills are what companies would like to have or do you think they're necessary skills to have? Uh, I don't think they're necessary. I mean, the reality is is that, you know, for all the, the rainbow beanbags and this and that that big tech companies offer, they just want hands to program fundamentally, right? So for a lot of jobs, you just need to program. Um, and programming isn't just a technical thing, you know. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of communication involved in like working with people. Um, so I think like on the leadership management side, you need to know how to work in a team fundamentally. If you can't work with people, you won't work with anyone. Um, business stuff, it's really just depends on what you're doing. If you're working for smaller companies, it's a lot more critical because you'll be a lot more involved with the business direction and like what motivates some technical decision. You know, if you're working in a big company with 30,000 people, your task is gonna be to you know, do something that has been well thought out by many people above you. So it would just depend on what you want to do with your career. Um, moving on with your uni life as well, I, like I know you were involved a bit with Robocop and Robot Soccer. I think uh, most of our listeners will know what soccer is, but maybe detail <laughs> what... What soccer is or what robot soccer what is? So I think most of our listeners will know what soccer is, yeah. but maybe detail what robot soccer is and how it maybe stupidly how it differs from real life robot. soccer. Robot soccer is a lot like normal soccer, except it's really freaking boring. Yeah. Um, it's like, everything's really slow. Um, it's like watching, it's like watching one year old babies that can walk play soccer right. basically. Right. Um, but I mean, there we play, we play in the standard platform league here. That's one of the things we do. So you have RoboCup, and then as part of RoboCup, you have SPL, which is where everyone gets the same robots. There's some Japanese robots and um, you program them and the key things that you program them you program them how to move you program them how to percept or see you program them how to understand where they are you know a sense of a, like awareness of position and you program them how to make decisions um, and I was involved with that for two years one of those years was pretty loose though just on that um, would you say that your interest in robotics or, or like yeah mechanics and robotics was a good bridge into um, Robo soccer? Uh, a little bit. I think, I don't know. I think I kind of just got over the robotics thing after a while. Like I was like, yeah, that's cool. But I think the thing with software is it's really abstract, right? Mm. And it's really hard to see the impact and scale of what you can do. Like I think, you know, you're a 17 year old person and you see, uh, you know, Google search and you're like, cool, I can look up stuff. And you see a, like a, a Roomba or whatever they call those vacuums that go around the house, like, cleaning stuff and figuring out where they are and yeah. you think whoa that's so amazing like that does some crazy yeah, stuff it knows where to go remembers where the balls are yeah. exactly but then you actually like you know as you start to understand software more you go and watch like the spacex landing right and you think holy hell like think about all of the control systems and the software and all the micro positioning it's doing and the tight like and you think that's incredible like there's so much to it there so i it's not i guess i just started realizing that robotics wasn't the coolest thing that I saw a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. To be honest, a lot of my motivation for RoboCut was that it just seemed fun. And I was at a point in my degree where I didn't give a damn anymore about anything. And I was like, well, robot soccer sounds a lot more fun than like, you've seen thesis posters around, right? Someone's like the, yeah. the, the connectivity between dual channeled something. And you're like, wow, that sounds really fun. <laughs> um, 
And I'm, I'm just not like an academic. I just like have the attention span of a peanut. Um, so it's, it was just fun. I was like, yeah, I want to see robots kick balls around. Hell yeah, let's do it. That was my thesis. And that's how I got into it. So I think right now that AI is already significantly advanced, but do you believe in an AI driven world? An AI driven world? Um, what is, what maybe maybe not like post-apocalyptic and robots are taking over and the robots are invading, but do you think we are close to a society that is everything's automated, everything is like humans have less control over what we do now because we are able to build robots to do them for us or do tasks for us? Um, I, to, to be honest, I think it's a super interesting topic. I haven't read as much into it as I'd like to feel like I have an informed opinion, but... I think that, you know, technology, it, uh, it amplifies things for better or worse, right? So I'd say it's like generally it's good, but, you know, you've got to be selective and, and careful about it. Um, there's probably a lot of areas where, like, I don't think anyone would disagree that Skype was a, a bad thing, right? Yeah. Like as a technology piece, like bringing people together, that sounds sweet. Um, there's some technologies that aren't like that. And in terms of AI, it's like... You see a lot of the pro AI people out there that are like, yeah, we got to do everything we can with it. And then you've got your Elon Musk or your even like Toby Walsh is here and CSE talking a lot about how robots like, we've got to be like careful, you know, like killer robots and all of that. Um, I think it's just scary. And, you know, I don't really, I hope it's part of the future and I hope we can deal with it in a sustained way. Sorry that that's a very broad no, answer. No, 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 I think it's a good answer. Um, I don't want the robots to like, look at this later and be yeah, like, he's a, nice he's a non-believer. Nice <laughs> I love AI, they're really sweet. I, like I, I want to be part of the, the future order. Says that with a gun pointing <laughs> from a future robot, yeah. Um, so, like, I think I have to mention it that you did have a small internship at Microsoft. Yep. What is it like working for a company like Microsoft? Oh, it's wild. It's excessive. Um, I don't know how they pay interns. I don't know how they have interns because, like, interns don't produce anything. It's so interesting with these big companies because they make so much money. They have, that, means they, that means they have the breadth to make big plans, right? Like, interns would lose them a ton of money. I was, like, thinking about this. I said this to someone the other week. They interviewed, like, 60 people or something um, in Sydney. So they flew, like, five engineers from Seattle over here, hoteled them for two weeks, paid for all their food. They didn't do any work because they were interviewing. And just like the sheer salary cost of interviewing a Microsoft candidate, even if you say no, is like a thousand dollars, you know. So um, it's just such an, a weird world because it's like kind of like the rules of business in some senses are so different because yeah. they're just like they'll throw all this money and happiness at you because they're playing a long game. You know, they, they want you to get in and they know that if they attract good talent at the base, they'll keep sustaining themselves over like a 10 year period. But I mean, the internship was wild. It was my first time overseas. I was 21. I'd never been overseas oh, before. Um, Sorry, um, where was it based? Seattle. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still largely like that, but they tend to, they don't satellite as much. They just like, Seattle's like a campus of 50,000 software engineers and you all go there. Um, but I originally wanted to say no, because I wanted to spend the summer uh, doing more SunSwift stuff. But I ended up saying yes in the end. and. Um, yeah, they just like flew, flew, flew you over, gave you a car that was like super cheap, put you in accommodation that was like super cheap. Work was super chill. Um, the work was interesting enough. You know, it's not, it's not like you're curing cancer or something, but like, yeah, it's interesting work. Um, met some cool people. Uh, it's just very cushy, you know, like 
it's like that with Google and these other places is you go there and you're just like, well, this is a pretty good life, right? Do you think you could work for one of these companies? Uh, maybe. Um, I Potentially. I mean, I, I struggle a little bit with the excess sometimes. Yeah. Like, it's probably just because of my general upbringing um, and the world I grew up around. Is it, it all just seems a little ludicrous to me sometimes. Like, people at cafeterias and here's your food. Like, you know, I spent, spent all this time trying to grow up, you know, like that was a big thing for me. It was like becoming an adult and moving out of home and looking after yourself. And then it's like, it's like nearly a regression sometimes to being um, looked after, which is not bad. Like I'm not denouncing it, but for me personally, it's always felt like a little weird sometimes. Um, it's actually one thing I really liked about Microsoft. And again, I said this to someone the other day was that they had cafeterias there where like the food was cheaper, but like it wasn't free. So like you still went to like lunch with your you know colleagues, but you, um, you like paid for it. Yeah. It was like $6 for a pizza or something. Yeah. Um, so that was nice. But I mean, just to go back to your question about, could I imagine myself going there? Um, maybe. I think if, if I got to a point where I was like, yeah, I just want to wake up every day and go to work and do some interesting things with some smart people and get paid and go home, then I would, I would love to. Why not? It's good. I think um, one opinion that I've heard a lot from people who've worked for these big companies such as Google, Microsoft, Facebook, for example, is that it's very um, competitive. Like you go to work, but you're still competing against your peers um, in the fact that everyone fought to get this position and they're still trying to prove themselves even though they've already got the position. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, my experiences obviously are I have a large number of secondhand stories, obviously, because I've talked to a lot of people, but I haven't spent years there myself with these things. I think firstly, in Australia, it's a pretty different place. It's, it's pretty relaxed here. And I used the word cushy before, and I hope that doesn't come across like it's, you know, you just rock up to work and you put your feet up and you do nothing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. In the US, it's a bit of a different story. You know, like you, you work a lot there. People there work a lot. They get paid a lot more too. You know, you look at the starting salaries in the US and it's like wild. So from what I've seen, the competition is pretty wild over there. Like if you want to go work in the US, in most cases you can expect to be kind of like devoting your life to work. Right. Um, and students ask me all the time, they're like, oh, I got a job offer at Atlassian in Sydney and I got a job offer at like Facebook in Cali. What should I do? And I'm just like, well, like, what do you want? Like, are you at a point in your life where you just want to like get, go, go, go and like go to work and just like kick goals and like meet people and like impress your boss and then go home and, you know, have some quick dinner and go to bed and like just keep going? Um, or do you want to just like work at a place where like a lot of people knock off at five and then they just like, you know, go for a walk on the beach, but you get paid a lot less too and the opportunities less. Um, so it exists. I think it just depends on the company but also it's much more common in the US for that kind of highly competitive environment within the workplace. How much, uh, how much um, like preparation did you do for the interview process, given that it's like so competitive? Oh, back then, huge. I didn't really, I kind of stopped caring about internships like after Microsoft, which was like the end of my third year for context. Um, so like in my first year, I didn't really do anything. I just like can't even describe it. I just like woke up and just like ate Kit Kats. And <laughs> Just like did nothing. Um, and in my second year, I was like, oh, maybe I should start trying to get my stuff together. So I just started applying for every single job I could find. I think I applied for like 65 jobs that year, like part-time, casual, full-time internships, just like everything. Um, I was doing like just interviews out of my butthole. Um, and it 
that was probably the main preparation I did. I don't think I ever like sat down and prepared like the whole the whole leak code thing um, is foreign to me. Not to say it's bad or wrong, but it's just like foreign. Um, I just went to class, I did my work, and I just kept applying for jobs and getting accepted or rejected by things, and kind of learned that way. Um, but you know, a lot of that leak code stuff too. That's a lot of that's really heavily geared towards the big tech companies. Yeah. Because they kind of just like churn you in they're like here's a problem do the problem and it's like fail pass you know so yeah um i was applying for a lot of small and medium-sized companies as well just on that do you think um like this emphasis on you know like asking people algorithm questions for like interviews for tech companies do you think that's like a bit of a like an artificial or like a just like an unnecessarily difficult barrier to entry for these like tech companies because I think um, just in Leecode I saw like an ad for this other company it's like Algo Expert or something mm-hmm. so they've literally marketed themselves as like a company to teach you how to pass a, like an algorithm interview and I just thought that's like a bit excessive like to focus your entire skill set in this one niche area of programming yeah I, look I think you raise a great a great thought um, and is it representative of what you do in the workplace um, vast majority cases, no, right? Um, most people don't spend all days working with algorithms, even at other like places I've worked. Most of work is figuring out what the hell you're trying to do and then just like trying to do it. And typically it's from like a heavy business need. You know, there's like some people that probably do some interesting things. Like I had a friend at Google who did um, like buffer optimization, right? Like you can think about the bandwidth of YouTube, how many videos are sent. And they were like, let's just figure out how to buffer only as much as is needed. Don't buffer anymore. Like use AI predictive analysis to be like, this person's probably going to click off this video. So let's not send bytes to them that they're not going to use. You know what I mean? Because it's cached in your browser. I'm sure they do some crazy stuff that comes from PhDs and research papers and other algorithmic things. But in the majority of cases, no, I don't think it's it's particularly reflective of what you do in the workplace. I think the challenge that companies have is, is to get to your term of necessary. It's like, how do you assess people effectively? You know, like, it, like it's, it's challenging. Like, how do you actually assess whether someone's worth it or not? Um, like, in, with my startup, when we take people on, um, if I think that they might be good, usually we just say, we'll pay you for 10 hours of work, and we'll give you a task that's like what we'd normally give people, and we'll just see how you do with that. You know, we don't ask them any programming questions. We don't do anything. Like, I don't even bother interviewing them half the time if I, like, know them. Because um, I just want to see like what it actually like ends up doing. Yeah. But, like that's really hard to do at scale as well, right? Because if you're doing all of that, you need someone to give feedback and answer questions as they go. Because if they can't set up the environment, like you have to help them, right? Um, yeah. So I think the problem is companies don't want to spend a ton of money on it. And I think asking people algorithmic questions is a great way in a in a it's a cost-effective way at scale to figure out who probably has a decent enough brain and skill set. There's probably better ways, but I'm I'm sympathetic to the the brokenness of it, if that makes sense. (laughs) It's been like disenfranchised after like your time at Microsoft or? Yeah, I mean, that's probably why I wouldn't even, that's why I don't even wouldn't want to apply for those tech jobs either because I've spent so many years building software and working with software. And it's like, if someone's then just like, oh, yeah, show me how to do a merge sort, and then I can't do it, and then they're like, yeah, you're not useful. I'd be like, well, that's messed up. Yeah. You know? um, 
I actually feel more sorry for people who aren't doing CS degrees because we're all taught this as part of our degrees, right? Like 2521 is the big course where it's taught yeah. it a bit. I feel bad for all the mature age people that are trying to pivot into another industry and then they're like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna go try and teach myself some leak code. And it's like, you're screwed. Yeah, my always my initial thought to like my coding background relatively only starts late high school, start of university. And it was always my thought that these interviews to get into these big companies was never a realistic depiction of what my true ability could be or should be when I graduate because you walk into the interview and you didn't remember that one algorithm and now I can't get into this company because I supposedly don't know anything. I think it depends on the company too. Like Microsoft, which was the last big tech that I really spent time on, um, like preparing, like thinking about, they did five interviews. They did five 45 minute interviews, um, like nearly back to back. And that was really good because you could screw one or two of them up and they'd, they'd balance it out. But yeah, if a company's just like asking you one question and then it's a very technical thing and then they're assessing you heavily on that, that sounds a bit whack. Do you think like maybe a regular interview, like a business interview, would that be better? But, uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. Do you think like a regular business interview where they just sit you down and ask you questions would be better than these uh, coding interview questions? Or do you think the coding interview question is the best for the current situation? I mean, it, it again, it depends on the company and what they want. You know, like I think about, um, Actually, the one, one thing I think about a lot with SunSwift, right, was that we were like, you know, we start building a team and there's like one of us, 10 of us, and we're like an exec, you know. And then there's like 20 and we've got 25, we've got the exec plus people who, you know, help make all those smaller decisions. And then you reach a critical point where you don't want anyone, you don't need anyone anymore to help drive the vision or figure out problems. You need people to just do the crap for you, you know, like obviously it's a volunteer project, so you can't just like pay them, but... You just need people to come in and sand some stuff. You need people to come in and just like, you know, screw some bolts in and tape up some stuff. And I think I started to understand that a bit more with these big tech companies too, is that, um, it, and it makes a lot of sense, is that at that level, at this graduate level, it's like, they just need more hands. You know what I mean? They just need more engineers doing stuff. So for a lot of those roles, it probably wouldn't help asking businessy questions because they just need more code written a lot of the time. Not to say you're a code monkey, because again, you need to work in teams and be able to communicate, but um, you know that, that skill set's kind of necessary for a lot of those dev roles. Um, but I think you know if you interview for like a PM role and stuff, it's, I think the interviews are a little bit different from what I understand. Um, moving back maybe a bit into your internship, what, do you, like, what are your thoughts on the traditional internship at Microsoft compared to the teams and stuff you worked in, these student-led teams and the student-run activities and societies and things like that? Yeah, I mean, it's just different. Um, you kind of learn different skills, you know, like the, the skills that, the skills that I learned from Sunsurf, like how do you get, how do you convince 40 people to do something dangerous for free, you know? Um, but you're often, you know, like Sunsurf, you're trying to get stuff done. You know, you, you have deadlines, you need to hit them. Um, the goal is really evident there. There's not, there's not a stronger sense of process. You know, like I'm at Microsoft and we're pushing, doing code reviews and we're getting code into the main branch, right? And it's like every piece of code we write, no matter how um, urgent it needs to get, it needs to be reviewed by at least two people in your team, you know? So I think the best thing about big tech internships is the sense of process that they ingrain in people. 
Um, and it's probably the one thing that even like I look for now is I, I value when people have worked at big companies, particularly big software companies, because they've usually learned something about what building software at scale is sustainably that either like I don't have to teach them or in some cases they can teach me, you know, like they can be like, oh, we used to do this at Facebook or we used to do this at IBM where we would, you know, um, document this or code review it this way or something like that. Um, I don't remember what your question was. So <laughs> I no, I think you have. Um, and then what's your opinion on big, te big tech companies versus small startups? What do you mean my opinion on them? Like, what do you think is the best overall in terms of work environment, workflow, who you work with? Do you, would you, do you prefer the big tech company or do you prefer the small startup? I mean, I like the small startup and they're just different. Again, they're just different beasts, you know. Um, the, the, smaller, the smaller tech company, um, I think there's kind of three categories for me, right? Well, there's kind of four in a lot of ways I've started to understand. It's like you have the startups, which is like what I do. You have like the small businesses, which are your, maybe they've got like 50 to 100 people. Um, Inside Sherpa is like a big one coming out of um, UNSW right now that's been through our like founders program. Um, uh, Toledo is another one. Like these companies that are growing quite rapidly, you're going to come on and you're not going to be in charge of anything massive, but you'll know the CEO kind of thing. You've then got your like medium-sized companies, which is like your Canvas. Um, they're like a huge company, but they're not like at some FU kind of scale. And then at the very end, you have your like Googles, Microsofts, Amazons, Apples that are just like dominating forces. And that's something I've honestly only started to fully understand a bit more is like, you know, I used to kind of think of Atlassian and Google as the same thing and then be like, oh, Canva's kind of the startup. Yeah. But it's like Atlassian and Canva are pretty similar in the grand scheme of things. And Google's like 100 data centers, freaking yeah. probably satellites in space yeah. and, you know, something, something here. But um, I think there's just like different people are ready for different stages of that right. or they want to do different things. Um, like if you meet someone who's like just super technical, like all that keeps them up at night is figuring out how to solve a problem. You know, they're just driven by like, you know, Richard Buckland style problem solving puzzles, you know, um, massive intellects. Then those big companies are so good for them, like Google, Microsoft, Amazon, because you just don't solve problems like that anywhere else, yeah. you know. Um, like Atlassian uses AWS, right? Canva uses AWS. Some people want to build AWS you know, like figure out how all the starting shit up, and then, oops, sorry, um, you know, it happens. Um, and then you got people that kind of are just more mid-tier and they just want to get into that like fun, boppy environment where, you know, it's young, it's like a lot of customer-driven stuff, like product management, building new apps, and that's more of your Canva Atlassian thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, then you have your smaller company, you're like inside Sherpa and whatnot, which is just for people who think, you know, like I want to like work at these cool places, but I really want to have a lot more license. I want to get a lot more invested. I want to help drive this company forward. Maybe I won't get to solve as more interesting problems as I think. Maybe I won't get to do all of my, you know, uh, end of year lunches at the opera house or whatever these right. big companies do. But, you know, you think I want to be part of it, like really part of it. And then you have like starting your own company, which is just a stupid thing to do, which is what I'm doing. Um, which I don't really recommend anyone does, to be honest, because I think the risk to reward is um, not very exciting. But just to tie that off, I, uh, I think a lot of people miss that second last one I talked about, that like inside Sherpa size, yeah. because you get paid a lot of the time. 
and you actually learn a hell of a lot because you actually get to see like what motivates software, you know, because everything you build has to be about keeping the company alive in the short term. It can't just be wasteful. Um, and a lot of people don't see those companies because they don't advertise. They don't have marketing. Like you have to look for them. You know, I see students, they're like, yeah, there's like eight companies I can work for because it's like the eight banners that come to a CSE soft barbecue. And it's like, not really. Do you, um, you mentioned that you started your own startup and I want to talk a little bit more about that. So you're the co-founder of uh, Perler Investments. Yep. Could you maybe the investments makes it sound so? <laughs> I just I just call it Perla when people call it Perla investments. Right, right. Like, sounds like I run a hedge fund. <laughs> okay, or um, so maybe tell us a bit more about Perla and what it is your team's trying to achieve. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I I, um, I have co-founded a company with three other people. Um, that makes it sound a little little scary than it is. Essentially, that for me means that. I have worked on this for free for two years, right? So um, think of it like a normal job, just working for free. Um, we are trying to tackle the big problem that um, there are people out there who understand money and do a lot with it. You know, you think about all of us have some rich friends that have some parents that are like talk about negative gearing and property this and like investing in shares that. Um, and then there's people who aren't like that. And we want to try and bridge that divide and in particular, like help people gain more confidence in tackling their financial world. You know, like how do we make people feel like, you know, they can understand what their insurance is and how that ties in here and, you know, what investing is and property is and all of that. That's like the big vision or like the mission that drives a lot of what we do. You can't start a company that does that because it's just bad business, right? It's too big. It's too um, heady. Uh, so in the short term, what we're focusing on is how can we make it easier for people to um, invest in the share market, which is kind of the lowest barrier uh, way to invest. And uh, yeah, we essentially just help people buy stocks and invest for the long term. It's not a trading platform. Um, we want to just help people be like, you know what, you've heard this thing about how like shares are better than having your money in bank accounts. I mean, I'm with Ubank at the moment and the interest rates, I think like 1.45% because the economy's up, 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 the, up the wall. Um, so interest rates are low and it's like, pe people kind of know this, right? Like how many young people do you know that are like, well, I have some cash in the bank. I can't afford a house because I live in this silly country and I, I know it should be doing something with the money, right? Um, but they don't know where to go. They don't know who to talk to or anything like that. So that's kind of the problems that we're tackling. So would you say that you founded your company out of like something that, out of like a problem that you saw like personally? Uh, no, not really. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's good to talk about because that's like the impression people get. Like there's this, there's this image that even comes to my mind when someone's like, it's like, oh, you know, Hayden's like co-founder of this like Perler Investments company. And they like, you, you can kind of, the images of like, you know, just like sitting down and like banging your hand on the table and being like, I'm going to, I'm going to build this from the, you know, here's like my big idea and I'm going to fix it. But like the reality is, you know, there's, there's two other people I work with that have very different backgrounds and we all form cogs in that chain and um, we all work at different levels as well, right? Like I work more at the product level. So I don't spend a lot of my time thinking about the future and thinking about the big problems we're trying to solve. I think a lot of, spend a lot of my time trying to figure out how this actually eventuates into something that people can use, you know, like a bit more problem solution, product market fit kind of thing. Um, I understand the problem, but no, I didn't. I didn't sit, sit down and write the thesis of it. Yeah, I feel as if like when you look at these companies and you just read their like mission statements and like the first things on their website, they make like they they, they make themselves sound out 
the, the like to be like revolutionaries or it's like visionaries yeah, in yeah. this industry it's hard because no one wants to give you money in terms of capital raising unless you can give them a sense of what you are and why you are and where you're going but you'll never actually get over the first hurdle unless you do something very focused and do it well um, and you can even see the struggle in articulating what we do to you guys, right? Like you have to be very kind of clear about, because if I just said to you, we're helping you invest in shares, that's probably correct. But like that paints a very different picture to what I said at the start. Sounds like eToro. Like e yeah, I mean, eToro e e for people who can put the damn app away and just leave it alone. You know, like that's, that's another way, like we've talked about it. Um, but if I just kind of said, oh, we're trying to change the way people interact with money or something, everyone's like, yeah, 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 sure. All right. Just on that, how difficult was it for you to like raise the initial capital, and, like go to investors and like pitch? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've intentionally not done anything with that because I have other stuff to do and I have, I have other members of my team. I mean, I help them, like it's like an open conversation. It's not like they just go away and money magically appears. Like there's, there's weekly conversations about like, what do we do, need to do next to raise money? We haven't raised much. You know, we're still very early on. Um, like, this is this is a company that might not exist in 12 months and statistically won't, right? And we're kind of spending every day trying to make sure it is here in 12 months yeah. so that this podcast isn't like a meme of itself, right? Um, and, uh, but yeah, no, like, I have co-founders that actually go out and, and chase the money. One, one in particular goes out and chases a lot of the money. But, you know, I'll help out. Like, you'll be like, you know, I got this into, we're meeting up with these people. We need to do a demo they're motivated by this. What do you think we can do to get them excited about this aspect of the platform? Um, and I mean, that's kind of cool. It's, I got very lucky with this company and the people I work with because um, I don't have the bandwidth or the expertise. I'd be, I'd be arrogant as hell to think I could raise money. Like, I have no experience with it, right? Sure, you can translate things, but like, why would you want to do that at this age? Like, you're better off learning from someone. But most of the enjoyment I have is, is as a software developer is developing software for a very strong purpose, you know? like in terms of what are we going to build next well we need to build something that we can raise money with you know like like and i have to tell my developers this all the time they'll message me and be like oh i don't like this particular library we're using you know like we're importing there's a new module we should upgrade to like say python 3.9 or something and you know i have to ask them all the time it's like is this is like you know Every, I think I said this to one of my developers, I was like, every 30 hours you spend is 1% of all the work we have to get a thousand customers right now. You know, and it's like, will that drive the business forward? And I think those questions, how those questions feed so heavily into software is kind of why these smaller companies are different and interesting in a different way. Do you think those questions were questions you've never thought about before? Oh uh, yeah, because you need like strong motivation to do it. You know, like, like you know, we talk about like SunSwift. I, at the end of 2016, I kind of realized that there was, at least for me, three big skill areas that I was interested in getting good at. There was like technical um, leadership and management and like entrepreneurial or like business skills. And I kind of came out of Sunswift being like, I have, I have absolutely saturated myself with like three and a half years and RoboCup of just like, you know, managing more people and bigger projects under more constraints than like most people my age, right? Um, and I learned a hell of a lot from it. And, but I was like, God, I'm terrible at programming. <laughs> like by the end of like 2015, I was like, you know, like I'm fine at it, but I don't want to be fine at it, you know? Um, and I was also like, I know nothing about business. Like, yeah, I know it's marketing PR, but like, that's not really business in the purest sense. So that's, what, that's why I then spent like a couple of years really getting more heavy into 
RoboCup, right? Because there was a lot of programming there and working with software teams. And then the last year at SunSwift, I actually spent doing software work in particular, like working with this modeling strategy or working with them. I was the modeling strategy team because it was like one person. Um, and and that kind of helped me round off a lot of my technical stuff, which I helped carry. And then for me, at least personally, the, the startups really um, helped get more of that business side. Um, I'm kind of, it's kind of funny, like I'm starting to get to a place now where I'm actually happy with my brain. Right. That I wasn't five years ago. Oh, that's a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing, but you know, um, things um, change. Just to kind of on a tangent, do you think uh, Perla is trying to bridge the gap between the people who don't know money and the people who do know money in yep. very basic terms? Do you think that um, this might be really off tangent, but do you think the education system doesn't teach students enough about money? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, Particularly at like the lower level, you know, I, I mean, the two things I'm always amazed that education doesn't teach is nutrition and money, yeah. you know, um, nutrition just as a pet side thing of mine is like, I'm amazed that most people don't understand the difference between fruits and vegetables, just like on a very quick tangent, like, like in a meaningful way. Like I tell people this all the time. It's like, cause like, you know, eat fruit and veg, right? Like if you see a plate of fruit and vegetables, you're like, healthy food. Like that's how we're right, kind of taught. Right. But, like, but like if you eat 10 carrots, that's really good for you. If you eat 10 bananas, you're going to get diabetes, yeah. right? Like they're, they're just, they do different things. And like, I'm amazed that so many people don't think about this a lot when it's like everything we do all day is like eat food. But in terms of money, <laughs> in terms of money, um, it's, yeah, like we don't teach people about like tax, like now that I'm earning money, it's like tax is everything. Yeah. Once you start earning money, you think about tax every day. You're like, is this, a, is this tax deductible? Like you buy a laptop and you're like, you know, suddenly now you're not buying a laptop with $1,000, you're buying a laptop with $1,000 that used to be 1,500 in a paycheck, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So like people, so like, you know, you know exam invigilation, right? So like I learned a lot of, I earned a lot of money last year. That's not like a, I'm just trying to be open about it. Like a lot is in like a hundred K, right? And there's like a lot of teaching and a lot of contracting work too, you know, not, not anything from Perla. Um, I was trying to save up for some family stuff, um, like parents and uh, you get taxed a lot, like at that rate, you get taxed to like 30%, like 32%. So when Mei Chang, God bless her soul, I kind of miss her, is she's like, oh, do you want to help exam invigilate? And it's like $30 an hour. I'm like, it's not really $30 an hour anymore. It's 20. Yeah. You know, at that rate, any extra work I do is like taxed to a third. And it's like, yeah. we don't, you don't think about that. Like, I didn't think about being taxed at all. I see people do this all the time. They're like, oh, I have a chute. I'll get someone to replace it. I'll just like bank deposit them the money. But it's like you actually get taxed on that money. Right. So you're actually like you're actually paying someone to do yeah. your shoot. You're not even like transferring it if you don't do it through like Castle, which is easier now. Um, I know you guys probably are you tutors if you're in first or yeah. That's right. Sorry that I just alienated a few people. <laughs> but um, but yeah, there's a ton of stuff. Interest, how interest works, like what's the difference between hex, what is indexation, what's inflation. Um, it's not a very technical thing. A lot of it's just economics. Like there's so much macroeconomics that people don't know about which is sad and I didn't know about really till I got involved I think, with Pearl. Um, like starting first year university I tried to get a job and once I got a job I started getting paychecks and you realize it's not just about getting money deposited into your bank account anymore you got to think about am I going to invest this money am I going to just keep it in my bank account am I going to have an, another account just for my savings am I going to have a spending account and then I realized 
um, am I in the tax bracket? Am I earning enough for that? Then I have to ask my dad, am I going to get taxed? And it's like, he's like, probably not, but you should be ready for that. And then um, you need a tax phone number. You need, And then if you're like, for example, I private tutor on the side, and I need an ABN for that. And it's like, these these things didn't exist in year 12. No, I mean, I, do you remember getting, I remember getting my tax phone yeah. number. It was this magical, yeah, yeah. like in high school, yeah. right? They're like, you have yeah. a tax phone And yeah. I was yeah. like, cool. Yeah. Post office, crazy. Like, and then you have like, it's like, I'm running errands. And I'm like, in year 12, I used to go to school and come home and sleep. Like, I didn't do any of that. And I think it's crazy that I went through the whole of high school not knowing what any of this was. Yeah. And now I'm in my first year of university and I'm forced to know this stuff otherwise I can't keep going in life like I'm going to be negatively affecting myself and I think like that's a major flaw of the education system is that we don't get taught any of this stuff oh and it's oh, and it's, horrible. it's horrible too I mean I, I grew up in a I grew up in a in a fair in a fairly poor household for Australia um globally I'm sure it was great um but it's like the difference as well in like how your household income is and what your parents' knowledge is and all this other stuff. Um, um, again, I'm sure you guys, like, I have friends who I'm just like, oh, what are you doing for your tax? And they're like, I don't know, my mom does it. Because yeah. she's an accountant at Deloitte or something. And I'm like, oh, cool, you know. Um, and that's like, that's the sad part. You know, like a lot of what motivates me is the, just that, um, just that sheer economic difference, you know. And, and it's it's been hard for me. Like the, when I came to Sydney, it's still to me the thing that, hurts me the most is seeing that economic disparity you know just like seeing how how wild it is that like anyone at university considers themselves poor yeah. you know like if someone on Centrelink considers themselves poor and it's like I mean you're on the poor end of it yeah. but like you know you're not a single mum with three kids who's just been divorced living in some sub I'm not going to give a specific <laughs> sub punch bowl yeah and I live in a punch bowl um but, you know, uh, it's just sad. You know, they don't know what they're doing. I don't know. I think, I think it's, there's always numbers on it too, right? Like money's the number one cause of depression. Money's the number one cause of divorces. It's like, and we don't talk about it. Like, that's the other thing. Like, why don't we talk about it? I mean, one thing we've talked a lot about with Perla is that, like, we're not just trying to solve a problem. We're trying to let people, like, we're trying to create environments where people are happy to talk about it. Like LinkedIn is so like LinkedIn's really trivial for us right now. Like I'm 27, so like it, LinkedIn kind of predates my professional life in a way. Um, but it's like people just talk. Like oh, I did this with my job. I got a new job. Here's my resume. I just added this skill. It's like yeah. that used to be a really private thing. Yeah. You know, like nowadays, you, if you were like, hey, can I just see your resume to your friend? They'd be like, well, what are you doing? Like, yeah. you know, it's like a private thing. And it's so cool that LinkedIn has opened up that entire world where people are so comfortable like saying uh you know i've just been let go and i'm looking for a new job and everyone's like we're supporting you and it's like why don't we do that for money like the one thing the one thing that impacts everyone more than anything you know like people don't want to talk about how much is in your bank account or how much you got taxed last year like i did my tax return i paid like thirty-two thousand dollars in tax like hurt my and it's like if you don't talk about it you can't learn and like if if you've ever learned from anyone about anything it's like talking about it, right? Like you're like, what health insurance do I want? Or what are you gonna do with your job? Or what internship did you do? I know some of this. Just and like, I think it's like, for me personally, like I can, I always just ask my parents if I have a question like that. But I think it's it's weird for me that I find it awkward or not right asking my friends when we probably all earn a maximum of $30 an hour and we're not 
we're not we're all living at home and like it's just weird that how that culture has been brought over to my friends and when we're still young with 18 19 years old why should we be concerned about that that shouldn't be a concern of ours oh yeah i was with i was with my friend's parent like three weeks ago and i was just like what was your biggest tax deduction last year and they were just like <laughs> what do you mean yeah. forbidden, forbidden facts, and i was like i'm yeah. curious because you'll tell me this and i'll be like oh wow i didn't even think about that you know like i have friends too that did i have friends that did their tax return their first like proper tax return and I was like, oh, it was so cool. I could claim my COVID working at home bonus where you basically, you multiply your hours you worked at home by 81 cents and that's, that takes off your taxable income. And it's like, they're like, what? What is that? And it's like, man, if I didn't say that, they wouldn't have thought about it. Like, they're not going to go on the ATO website and read the goddamn tax code. Um, we, don't, we don't learn big things in our life. Like, no one goes on Google to, like, if you're going to go buy a house or you're going to get health insurance or you're going to buy a car, you don't just read reviews online and go buy the damn car, do you? You, you, you probably read them anyway. Yeah. But you know what you do after that? You're like, hey, dad, yeah. you know, hey, <laughs> like, hey, friend, or like that other person, you know, and you talk to people about it. And that's just missing from our world of money. I think it's a, like, very interesting, like, I, I think it's interesting how our world has come to that because before, I think it was, in very past times, it was very obvious who had the money, who didn't have the money. In like, I don't want to sound like off in that way, but it was like, like for example, King Henry the Eighth. Like, it was very obvious he was the rich, right? He was royalty, royalty. but the castle. Yeah, yeah. But nowadays, it's like you don't know how anyone's financial situation is looking, and you don't know, like, nobody knows how to positively impact their financial situation because they don't know these things. They don't know what's best for them in terms of their money. They just go to work, work their nine to five, come home, and then that money's in their bank account the following week. Or yeah. yeah, and it's sad because like we, when we, we learn a lot, I think, from other people, and we, learn, and we can only understand other people if we understand some fundamental things that motivate them, right? Like, whether your friend lives at home or lives out of home, you know, um, whether they, you know, have a big job or not a big job or a part-time job. And it's, again, I, like, I have friends whose parents never talk to them about money. They just, like, refuse. Like, they're like, Mom, Dad, how much do you earn? And they're like, no, nah, I'm not talking about it. And it's like, that's so hard, I think, because we learn so much from our parents. Like, if you understand how much your parents are earning, you can make sense of their decisions. Yeah. You can make sense of what kind of people they are, what kind of things they value. And it's really hard, this whole thing, because there's a fine line, obviously, where, you know, people can also use that information to like vilify or hurt other people. Um, but you know, if I have a friend who, you know, is earning $240,000 a year and they're cycling to work, um, that's very different to a friend that has no job and they're cycling around Sydney. Because in the latter case, it's out of necessity, but in the, in the former case, it's like, this is something that matters to them. Maybe it's their health or maybe they're trying, maybe they care about saving more. Um, there's just so much metadata. And that's why it's like hard. And it's like hard even when I talk about like salaries and tax and stuff. In Australia, we have the whole tall poppy syndrome, right? And, and I'm kind of like that. I don't like talking about, I don't like talking anything up. I don't like other people talking anything up. When someone's like, like if I was like, yeah, I'm a really great lecturer. I just like want to vomit in my mouth. And anyone else who's like, I'm a really well-respected lecturer. I just want to vomit in my mouth. And that's kind of part of the problem, yeah. you know, um, in this country is you just, pe people are scared to, to talk about good things, you know, and, um, 
that's a shame because that's how we learn a lot you know like i'm i'm weird talking about my salary even though i like want to i try and do it more because it's like um you know it helps other people make sense of me yeah. and the world but you know it always comes across no matter how you say it it's like you know who can hate him yeah hayden thinks he owns money what a what a shithead um but I mean, I also, it's funny because I think technically because I work for a public institution, I'm not sure if you'd be able to, I think you could file like a Freedom of Information Act to figure out how much I get paid anyway at the uni. Aren't they private institutions now ever since Tony Abbott? That, that's I what I was no reading about. Yeah, because yeah, um, I think just this is a completely like different note. I think in 2014, Tony Abbott, he changed something about um, how universities are funded which meant that they could allow more international students but i think they got a lot less government funding mm. so i'm not really sure if you yeah if they're yeah, still I'm really sure public sure. institutions yeah. yeah i think you raised a good point about how like so my parents when i was younger they they didn't really tell me about how much they made because i think their thought was they don't want me going to all my friends and be like oh look my mom makes so and so my dad makes so and so which i think is understandable yeah, i think exactly because the world's a yeah, shitty place yeah. um but I think you raise a good point in the fact that if I knew how much my parents made, I can make so much sense of what they're doing with their money. I can make sense of, all right, they're looking to do this because they want to invest. They wanna, they're want they not buying this because they want to save and so and so because maybe not right now for me, but with the money I have in my bank account, I don't know what to do with it because mm -hmm. it's like once I started making... Before I started making money, I was like, oh, I want to buy this, I want to buy this, I have this one I want to buy. And then now when I'm making money, I'm like, all right, this is a third of my pay. This is this is, this is is going to take me two weeks to pay for. And it's like, I don't want to buy that anymore. And it's like, I just keep all my money and I save it. And I'm like, all right, so I have all this money and what do I do with it? But I think it's, I, through like talking to people I know or talking to my family, it's like, all right, I should look at investing it or I should look at saving it up and looking at long-term goals now, which is something like in high school, it's like, all right, I'm looking towards my HSC and after that, yeah, what yeah. the ATAR, get ATAR, into ATAR, my degree ATAR, ATAR, and then I'll figure out things after that. So it's a completely different world. So I think you raise a good point there. But maybe let's move back into your world at the startup. And did you get any support from UNSW's founders program? Uh, yeah, so we were part of we were part of a couple of really tiny programs, but um, we were the part of the third cohort of a dozen startups, roughly that they take um, that they put in like a ten week program where you know you. I mean, it's actually a pretty cool program in hindsight. I was just very busy, so I forgot about it for a moment. But you do ten weeks where you're all in the same space, so it's like a big nine to five camp, if you will, big professional camp. Um, and then, you know, they'll do activities and guest speakers and company tours and, um, uh, and you go to San Francisco for a week. So they fly you over there and they give you like 25,000 in cash for the, for the company, which isn't actually a lot of money for companies of that size, like in that program, um, you know, that's, that's not a ton, um, for what they want, but uh, they give it to you very cheap. I think it's like 2% equity or something, which is, uh, or something less than that. I don't know. It's very good. Um, they're not trying to, they're not trying to rot you. Um, but yeah, that's good. I mean, UNSW's investment in entrepreneurship is pretty solid. Um, you know, I have a lot of, a lot of general frustrations with UNSW across a number of areas, but, um, I think what they've done with entrepreneurship here is pretty good. And you just, you just have to do it. You know, you just have to like, you can't just be like, we'll support a couple of startups. You, you have to like go hard and build an ecosystem. Right. 
where people start like feeding back into it. It's kind of sad about COVID because that kind of breaks a lot of that, you know, that community aspect that they were starting to build. But um, If you told your past self that you would be diving into the startup world, what would your past self How <laughs> <Our> past? <laughs> um, let's say <laughs> like in your undergraduate degree in the first couple of years. Right. So if I was like, yeah, okay. It's like, oh, in five years, you're going to be doing startup stuff. Uh, look, I mean, I'd probably be like, ah, yes, so. Um, I'm really shruggish about a lot of things in general. Like, if my house burnt down tomorrow, I'd be like, ah, well, stuff happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and if the startup went bust, I'd be like, oh, you know, stuff happens. Um, and, you know, if tomorrow I ended up working at Subway, I'd be like, cool, time to get really good at making sandwiches. Like, I don't, I don't have many preconceptions about what I want to do with my days or my weeks, but I'd probably say it makes sense. Um, it being successful, I wouldn't believe, and it's still something I'm trying to come to terms with now. There's, there's been a lot of, like, a lot of defective cards I've been dealt in life that make me think the good things don't happen. Um, and... The startups at this critical juncture now where we're either going to make it through till like in nine months it'll either not be there or we'll have like a thousand customers and be chugging along okay um has covid affected like how your business is operating? not really we've been lucky in a way that we were even slower than we wanted um so we don't have many fixed costs like we haven't we haven't rented office we haven't got people on full time that we have to scale back um we haven't signed contracts that have fixed... A lot of contracts you sign have, like, fixed costs, you know? It's so like you have to... It's like $3 a use, but there's, like, a minimum 1000 a month so that the company de-risks their commercial agreement. Um, so we haven't signed as many of those as we were intending to. So uh, it would be worse if we were doing better in some ways because we'd get hit by it and wouldn't have the ability to consolidate our cost base. Um, but, yeah, I, I, think I, would, I think I would just not believe that it would go well. Um, and it's super interesting as well, like seeing the difference in startup land. Like there's this, I don't remember where these terms are from, but there's these like two terms called like a mindset of scarcity and a mindset of abundance. And it's super interesting, like seeing people who kind of grow up in households where, you know, you, they get more things and things grow and you buy more stuff, you know, because um, they, they're, they're in this, this mindset of abundance where they just think that if I just keep going, like we'll get through it, you know. Um, and in startup land, like I work with people like that. I'm, I'm amazed by their optimism all the time. Like they're just like, let's just keep putting money in and like, we'll get there. Like it's like the when, not if kind of thing. Yeah. And because of the background I come from, probably particularly with just like family, it's like, I'm always just like the mindset of like scarcity. Like right. you're used to people like losing their jobs or going into debt. And so you like look at this startup and you're just like, like when is it gonna, when is it gonna go? Like it doesn't make any sense that things would go well because yeah. like things just don't go well. Um, so that's probably the thing I wouldn't believe if they were like, yeah, yeah, you started a company and it's like now worth a million dollars. I'd be like, yeah, maybe. Um, and I'm still like half dealing with that right now. You know what I mean? We're, we're at a very interesting precipice. So in a year, I'm either going to tell you that I was right all along or that I'm, I'm glad I was finally proven wrong. Do you, would you advise that people should at least try a startup or jump into the startup world? Yes, absolutely. Um, and they should do it while they're younger as well, because I learned this, uh, like I was kind of pittering around startups throughout my undergraduate degree, which was good. But here's one thing I've learned myself, and I, I think it probably is true for a lot of people. When you graduate and you kind of turn around, you know, let's just say like, you know, 
24, 25. Like you work for a year or two, you earn some money. The, the reality of life really sets in in like a different way. Like, you know, you kind of turn 18 and 19 and you're like, oh, I need to like be an adult now and, and upskill. And you think like you've now gotten to a point where you're like, if you're just sitting on a Sunday, like playing video games all day, you're like, yeah, this is bad. Like, <laughs> this is going to end badly for me. Um, and I hit a different point kind of after I graduated, like around 25. For me, it was tied to it. I had a, I had a big medical issue uh, to do with a bicycle crash that uh, cost a lot of money. And that kind of woke me up a bit because you, you like to turn around and you're like, God, you know, if, I'm a, if, I, if I intend to have <clears throat> a life that isn't just like, you know, living in a share room, um, I need money. Like I, I, need, like I, need, I need to start saving. I need like a house deposit. I need like, I need uh, to save money so that if I have a child, I'm not gonna run out of money, you know, cause children are expensive apparently. Um, and like that hit me. And then suddenly everything I started doing came down to, you know, am I, saving enough and you don't think about that at uni it's so weird like some people do like I was obviously saving money because you know I needed to pay rent but you're not thinking about being 35 yeah. as much you know if you're thinking about a house that's just because everyone wants a house but you're not thinking about like oh I wonder if like having a child's going to inhibit my ability to have enough savings to invest so that I don't have to work till I'm 70 um, and I think those questions started to hit my head more and that wasn't good because it makes it harder to get into startup land because now suddenly you're like, do I really want to work for free, age 26, 27, and 28, and then wake up 29 with 20,000 in the bank, and then realize I need to earn some money, and then you're just like screwed. Like, if you don't sort yourself out financially between 25 and 35, it makes a big impact on like the rest of your life. So, sorry, that was very long-winded, but to come back, um, the reason I think startups and all these other things are great at uni is because you just don't care if you're making any money from any of this stuff. Like you can get involved and the brain is so weird at an undergraduate degree. It just doesn't care about being 30. Yeah. It just doesn't. So embrace it so you're not dealing with the stress. Like just go have fun and learn some stuff and don't get remunerated. It's a good time. I, I think I agree. I think startups, um, I, was, I was part of a small startup during high school in like in the greatest dreams as a competition, but we started our own business and it was like, we didn't make any profit. I think we made, I think the profit was $4 or something. Hell yeah. Um, um, and, and get taxed on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we profited $4 and um, we had to give back dividends and everyone, like the return was like 25 cents <laughs> or something like that. So that's cool. Um, it, but like it was the experience that was really interesting for me because um, during high school, I didn't do any economics. I didn't know any commerce. And I was head of finance for this startup. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but sure. Yeah. And yeah. I had to learn how to make all these balance sheets and I had to write up all these financial documents. And then like, I didn't learn. So I was just watching YouTube videos on how to how to balance a balance sheet. And I was like, all right. Literally accounting. It's literally accounting. <laughs> I'm just gonna say, um, yeah. And I was um, like, yeah, okay. Line. I think I can do it. And you try it and it's like, I think I did it. And you just show it to someone, like, it looks good enough to me and that's how it is. But we had to go through the whole process of designing a product, manufacturing a product, selling a product, marketing a product. And I was like, I was never gonna learn this unless I did this startup. And right now in first year university, I, I don't see myself doing it any time, but I know an opportunity is gonna come around where I will have to know how to do this stuff. And I'm glad I've had that experience. So I think I agree with the, yeah, I 
yeah, I think you're spot on too because um, you can't wait till you're ready to do stuff, yeah. right? You're never ready and you have to get that out of the way. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, <clears throat> whether it's like projects or other things, there's a lot of times I've been involved with stuff and made a lot of mistakes. And, you know, I mean, particularly like your age or the age of people listening, it's like your aim right now is to <laughs> screw everything up. So that when, when it actually matters, you know, when you're actually, you know, you have that job that you need to excel at, um, or, you know, in my case, like you're starting a company, it's like you've, you've gotten as much of that out of the way as you can so that like you're, you're doing good things based off a lot of dumb things you did before. Um, waiting till you're ready is a mistake a lot of people make. Like I'm not ready I, with this startup, you know, like it's not stopping me. We, we make mistakes, stuff happens. I think that's something every person who works on start needs to know. It's like your business, most of the time will fail um, until it doesn't. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, well, it's hard too because, like, I'm, I'm giving this other thing for CSE SOC in week eight um, about imposter syndrome. It's like a Zoom call or something. Um, and like the main thing, the main thing I was thinking about talking about there was just the fact that, like, everyone always looks at people and they're like, they figured it out. You know, and I know what it's like. You look at like people like 30 and you're like, wow, you know, it's, they, they must have had so much clarity. <laughs> That's what you think. You're like, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, you just imagine, hey, it's like, I'm going to do SunSwift and I'm going to do this. And it's like Robocop. And it's like, now I'm going to start a company. It's like all the grays missing, you know. I've spent nights wandering around being like, the hell am I doing? Or like, you know, submitting assignments a week late without realizing the deadlines there and like bashing your head against the wall and like being depressed and just like that whole spectrum of stuff. Um, anyway, it's a tangent, I won't get into it now, because obviously I guess I'll get into it with that other thing. But um, yeah, like it's the big problem is, I think a lot of people do that. They look at it and they're like, well, you know, that person clearly has clarity in what they're doing. And I don't have clarity in what I'm doing. So I should figure out, wait till I like have that clarity, till I'm like them. But it's like, no, they're like you. That's the point. Yeah. Everyone's, everyone's screwed, everyone's sad. All right, so maybe we'll come to our concluding topic, which is more about your role in UNSW and what it's like being a lecturer. Um, you get to work with great students <laughs> like yourselves. So your, so your Can you please push back <laughs> the uh, iteration to Judith? I'm begging you. Uh, so you're currently the lecturer in charge for Comp 1531. Um, so what is it like being a lecturer in charge? What, what do you have to do behind the scenes to get a course like Comp 1531? That's, That's a great question. I always make a joke that I, I think lecturing is like, it's like 49% um, public relations, 49% pastoral care and like 2% education, particularly for bigger courses. You spend, you spend half your week trying to make students feel okay yeah. and trying to keep every, de-escalate everything. Yeah. You know, everything's fine. You know, like you, you communicate in a controlled way. You try and just like uh, the opposite of chaos. Like, and you've all probably seen or heard of chaotic courses at UNSW, right? Where everyone's just like pulling their hair out and everyone's talking about it. Cause they're like, this went wrong. You like the opposite of that. Um, and I, you know, there's just a lot of, it's really a lot of just managing that vibe, particularly at that, those volumes of students. Like, you know, Comp One Five Three One's the biggest course in CSE, right? In this term, T Three, right? And like, they were telling me last year that it might go up to like 900 people or something ludicrous. Um, but a lot of the, f that, that's kind of how I see the critical parts of the job. But formally, it's like you're lecturing, you're managing tutors, you're setting tasks, and like all the labs and assignments. Um, and you're dealing with all of the one-off issues that students have, everything from special consideration to like, you know, my tutor's doing this to like, I don't know what class I'm in. Um, 
it's a fairly centralized, uh, fairly centralized role. And you just, you kind of just, it's really just owning everything, um, which is good and bad. Like you have complete autonomy in a lot of stuff, like decision-making on students submitted this late, an hour late, are they gonna get it? Uh, I think this is something I've wondered is how, how do you guys go about making the assignments, making the labs, like making sure my, the auto tests run, for example, like how do you guys go about setting all of that up? Oh, honestly, I don't know. Like, it's like, uh, you know, I just sit down and write out some idea and then just write some auto tests for it later. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's easy when you've run a course before because obviously you've done that yeah. previously. But, um, I mean, typically I'll look, at, I'll, look at, I'll look at a lecture. I'll be like, what, are they, what have we taught in lectures recently? Um, what can we teach them that isn't repeating that but expands upon it that doesn't add too much? Um, and that's, that's probably a thing you always have to go through. The actual, the actual idea of like what kind of question should you ask, honestly, a lot of that comes from experience. Um, like that's something I'm very quick at now. Um, like I'll, I'll write entire labs, not the auto marking, but I'll write entire labs or shoots in like 45 minutes sometimes because you've, you've, like you've mock interviewed students, you've done tutorials, you've done lectures, you've written these things before, you've seen how they've taken it and you, you slowly get a good sense of like what's the right scope. Is this question too big or too small or is it too tangential or like what do you actually want them to learn from this? Um, so it's just I think a lot of experience, a lot of getting it wrong is probably what I'd say. So you, you have a lot of um, autonomy in terms of like designing the course relative to like maybe like the admin of the computer science like faculty like it, it's not like they're like controlling your hand they're like we want these curriculum points like no a lot of it's a lot of it <laughs> i mean a lot of it's like i if i wanted to i could i could cut a whole topic out of 1531 i could just cut out testing no one would stop me um eventually the uni would get audited probably by engineers australia who would look at all their degrees look at all the learning outcomes of those degrees, look at the actual content in the course and be like, <laughs> um, that's, not, that's not compliant. Um, so there's like a, a natural, it, it's like there's a lot I can do, but that doesn't mean I should do it or that there's no consequences for it either. And like, I, I, I proactively would talk to the school about things. So like if I want to introduce, like there's a topic in 1531, it's probably the only big topic I introduced, which is continuous integration, continuous deployment, right? Because I was working in startup land and I was like, well, it's not just writing code, but it's actually like, you know, how does it test it and sent out to users? I was about to comment, yeah, your, your process at, um, like, the, the, like your discussion about the processes of Microsoft and about how it's a lot about merging and um, reviewing mergers and also like in startups, uh, your startup experience. That, that does sound a lot like the 1531 experience, just like from firsthand. So, did your personal experiences dictate a lot of the course design and requirements, especially for the assignment? Yeah, I mean, I, I took over 1531 in 19T3, um, and I took it over at the time, shared the responsibilities with a guy called Rob Everest, who if anyone's done the course previously, they know Rob, and if they're doing it now, they've probably seen his name appear randomly in merge requests or something. Um, but we just kind of, um, we sat down in a room, like downstairs on level, and we just like wrote out on a whiteboard. We were like, yeah, what are like 10 weeks? We'll talk about this, we'll talk about that. And he was like, we should talk about um, state modeling and these other interesting things. And I was like, oh, we should really do something on testing. Um, and it was really good. We just kind of figured it out together. It was like largely still the same learning outcomes, but we just thought about like how we want to do it and what stuff is not covered enough or what stuff was covered too much. But it's definitely a lot of personal experience. I mean. My, my broad aim with 1531 
um, is that I like I would like students to come away from it with a very broad, basic sense of what you know being in a software team. A good software team means in you know three quarters of the workplace these days. You know we're not going to teach them everything or all the best practices, and sometimes we have to teach bad practices just to get just because you have ten weeks. You know, um, but if people come away and they're like, oh, you know, well, like we write code, we merge it together, we read some stuff, we figure out what to do, we make some assumptions, we like it gets deployed somewhere. Um, it's like, well, that's what software is these days. Probably won't be like that in ten years, but that's what it is right now. I'm just curious on that. So, what what was the thought process behind? Um, because you've, you've only got like 10 weeks to roll out a course per term. So what was the decision behind, you know, teaching it in Python, using GitLab, these like brand new like programming paradigms to people who are just come out of 1511 and all they know is malloc and realloc and, and they've suddenly got the, the power of these like Python 3 and all the libraries and the kind of understanding that they shouldn't build everything from first principles. I was just curious as to why that decision was made? Um, it's a good question. I mean, 1531 is fundamentally a course about requirements, testing, and teamwork, right? It's about building for the right problem, um, making sure it's tested, and working as a team. Those other things like attach onto that, you know? Um, there's two big parts of the course that I would say aren't fundamental to its philosophy like fundamental being key, one being Python, the other one being web stuff, like HTTP. Um, HTTP is in the course because I think it's critical and it pervades everything. And typically, if you do other comp courses and stuff, you deal with it somehow, somewhere. You know, if, if like you do ethics or 3900 or something else or doesn't do that, it just comes up a lot of the time. So it's, it just has to be taught early on. Um, the Python thing... I don't, I don't love teaching Python. In particular, I think Rob and I always wanted to teach a strictly typed language in 1531, like a Java-style language, like a language with types. Yeah. Um, I think Java would probably be more of the pure language for one. Uh, but then it's hard because Java has OO in it, so that's like a whole other week or two of topics. Like you're damned if you do. And especially because OO is becoming a lot more under scrutiny these days. I think people are understanding that like this idea of like you should... like. If you want to write a program, you have to put it in a class. Like, why not just build the program? So, yeah. So, we, we, was the OO side of Java like the reason that you didn't go with well, it? No, so, yeah, that's a great question. So, the reason we're with Python is because um, uh, we have to largely. And that's because if we don't teach Python, no one else will. I've actually recently become, I have to think about it more, so I'll say this lightly, but I've recently become nearly a proponent of less flexible software degrees. As like an undergrad who was like, look at all my electives. I'm not going to do what I'm told. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do. Sounds like, sounds like computer science. Yeah, it's like computer yeah. science, right? It's like now that I'm teaching it, it's like, God, it is hard to teach because everyone comes in with all these different backgrounds. People come in, they've like done these two courses. They've done an SQL course. And now they're like, oh, I'm just going to go do this. And people can do this course later in their degree. And it's like, it's really hard to have like good, really deep learning situations because everyone kind of comes at it with different angles. So you have to be a bit lighter on everything and you have to be like a lot more inclusive. And um, anyway, the point of that was that we teach Python there because if we didn't teach it there, there's like, where else are you going to teach it? You can't teach it in 2521 because it's another C course. You can't teach it in 1521 because that's a course on my most beloved, beloved topic, MIPS and, <laughs> you know, low level stuff just, you know, it makes me sad. Um, <laughs> 
yeah, like, let's make a program that can count to 10. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what? Wow. Um, I'm just not good at that stuff. Um, but uh, the, yeah, it's like if, it, it's not, if Python's not taught there, then when students go and do machine learning or artificial intelligence or uh, networks or just some other courses that have Python in it, because Python is just like the universal scripting language. The universal language so gets stuff. Say the, the modernity of it is like essential. So like Python is pretty much the language of our age. I don't think people are going to be like using C outside of UNSW. So did that like play a big part of why Python was the was the choice? So, um, I would say that C is C is C is like C plus plus. It's extremely heavily used in particular use cases, right? Like a lot of the lower level stuff that a company like Google would do, they wouldn't dream of doing it in anything other than C or C plus plus because they need the performance and the control. Um, say Java is far more widely used than people realize. It's probably like still the most popular language of like corporates because it's a easy to program with strictly typed language, right? Loosely typed languages aren't really used by serious people because you need assurances at compile time. Um, Python though is, is just, it's become this language now of, you just need to, like it's the language where software is not the point, you know? Like when your point's the data or your point's like, it's a lot of data crunching, like it's used probably most heavily in science data science right yeah exactly like even like physicists now like learning python so they can crunch numbers for their own data science stuff um little scripts like a lot of cse's built on python scripts or like perl scripts in some cases um and so it's very commonly used i'd say in general um not for big software arc i mean i built an entire web platform in python once on the back end and i wouldn't do it again i just didn't like it in hindsight but no you're just making, no, you're just making us do it for one five three yeah and, uh, yeah. yeah well i i wanted i originally wanted to teach javascript because i mean that's what that's what i'm using it's what everyone's using for web stuff and i tried to push that um and that's when i got the pushback that was like we need to teach them Python. They said, no, 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 teach them JavaScript on the front end, that's fine, but you still need to teach them Python somewhere. And I was like, well, I'm sure as hell not teaching them two languages in a, that course. Like the course is already big enough. So it's, it's largely there as a necessity as part of the program. It's hard to look at in a vacuum. Um, and it's not terrible, you know, I, I don't mind it. I, I like JavaScript, but that's, that's just people beating opinions against a wall. Um, I wish there was a more strictly typed language there. And we've talked about like a typed version of Python as well and whether it's worth it or not. But I'll oh, just as a concluding point, I think the um, the bridge between English and Python, like how narrow it is, like how like you can pretty much read it as English. Like I think that also has a, like an a, that makes it appealing to people who aren't necessarily in programming or like first learning it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I think. I think it's a good. I think it's a good uh, language for the kind of needs that we have in that course. Um, but you know, I don't do a lot with it personally these days either. Um, you're also a big part in creating. Correct me if I'm wrong. A completely new course this year in Comp sixty eighty, web front end programming. Yeah. Did you see a gap in the curriculum for Comp? I think everyone saw a gap in the curriculum. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to take ownership in identifying the gap or even to an extent plugging in. I mean, everyone's been talking about so many people end up building user interfaces, not just in the workforce these days, but um, also just like in other courses, you know, and there was this just big divide. There's like students that know front end and those that don't know front end. And particularly these days with the boom of JavaScript and declarative frameworks, um, it's not even really a decision anymore how you're going to build a UI. 
like no one's building UIs in Java anymore. No one's building them in like some C++ suite. It's like all the same thing. Um, so that need was identified by the school, by students, um, you know, by, uh, you know, uh, industry partners like alumni that like looked back and were like, wow, it's sad that I never got taught that in part of my degree. Um, and everyone was trying to put it in everywhere. Andrew Taylor probably made the most effort putting it in 2041. I tried to put some in 1531 in the initial offering, but eventually we just got an email chain together between me and Andrew Taylor, John Shepard, some people at Canva, Google, Atlassian, and we're just like, let's make a course. Um, and then I just got slapped with the responsibility of it, um, which isn't because I'm special, it's just because I'm on payroll. Um, there'd be plenty of people who could do it fine. Um, what's the process of building a course from the ground up? Uh, it's actually not that hard. You just, have to, you just have to figure out what's in the course. You have to make lectures for it, and then you have to make assessments that actually assess what you're taught. Like fundamentally, every, every tute lab and assignment should be in service to the content that's being taught, right? Mm -hmm. Like you shouldn't be just teaching content that has no purpose. You can do a bit because that's fun, you know, like sometimes you just be like, yeah, we'll just talk about this because everyone's interested in it. But too much of that and students are like, what are we doing here? Um, so the hardest part was, well, I mean, we had to first figure out what's in the course, which is like a scoping thing. Like do we teach this topic, not that topic? This needs to be in there. This is too much. Um, it's not crit it's not fundamental to like basic knowledge. The harder part with front end was figuring out how to teach what you teach, you know, because it's not just like like the reality is like teaching like you look at one end one five one one c it's like it's not really that hard how to teach. You got like ten topics, you just like teach it. Even one five three one's not too hard because it's you know just like Python and some other stuff. Um, teaching front end is really hard because you can't do much in a vacuum. Okay, so you're like, oh, we're going to build a basic web page that gives you an alert. Okay, we make an alert in JavaScript, great. Well, that JavaScript sits in HTML. Okay, what's HTML? Like, how is that code sent? What even is a browser? You know, like, the, the, every, every question leads to so much more. So the big challenge for us was, how do we, how do we create a course where students can learn stuff and they can build on it without just creating this like, seemingly endless abyss of content to explore? Um, and like also the big problem with trimesters is um, you can't teach you can't teach complex topics late in term anymore. This was something that I I get a lot of things wrong in my life. Um, this is one thing I guessed and I think I got right. And we tried it out in one nine one one last year. So if you guys don't know, one nine one one is the same as one five one one. It just doesn't have a link list. That's like the quick summary. And what we what I did was um, when you condense down the old style course, I think uh, pointers came in at about week seven or eight, right? kind of like latish in term um and i think we introduced them in like week four in one nine one one it was this big funny thing because all the one nine one one students who like in general aren't as capable as the one five one one students they were all like oh we're learning pointers and the one five one one students were like what's a pointer and all of this but we did that even though it was like more confusing because when you have so little time to teach you need to hit people with hard topics early because people need weeks with topics not days right like they can't just they can't just like you can't just teach them in week seven and be like, just spend four days really hard on pointers. Like you just, you just need weeks to like not understand it and then it'll click eventually. So um, I think it's really important that we teach harder topics early and that's one of the problems with trimesters is that you can't teach hard topics late, but with front end, if you try and teach the harder topics early, there is far too much context to understand. There's so many questions. So it's like, how do we, it's like a weird, you know, juggling act of chicken and egg 
Um, and I think we've done okay on it. I think we've gotten a lot of little details wrong with the course, but the big things have been fine. How do you find teaching a comp course? And do you, do you think it's, when I say a comp course, I mean in general, like programming courses compared to like English or accounting, for example. How do you find it? And do you think it's easier than all teaching? My, all my years teaching English <laughs> courses. No, but I mean in general, do you, do you find it, do you think it's an easy course to teach or do you think there's a lot of like, a lot of niche things that people will ask that like, they're not as easy to understand and comprehend as a student. Uh, I think, oh look, I love and hate it all at the same time. There's good and bad things about it. And it's all to do with the students, you know, yeah. um, because the students in CS, they're, you know, I, I mean, I hang around because I like working with them. They're so creative, they're so motivated, they're so curious, you know, like they want to learn and listen and help each other. Um, and, you know, they, they want it to be flexible and fun. They don't just want to be like given some problems and go away and, and work with it. So that's really fun because from an educational standpoint, it's not as rigid. You get to think about creative ideas, you know, and um, fluff around a little bit more and, and be a bit more fun. I think the downside though is that um, it's a bit harder though too because I find computer science students in general can be a lot more particular and nitpicky about things. Um, like I have students emailing me being like, hey, um, I got my assignment mark back and they'll argue for like 0.1% of a mark. Like they'll like really, really argue it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to uh, in any way say that, that they're not entitled to do that, of course. Like if people don't feel like they've been assessed correctly, it's important that they have a voice and that we go through a process. Um, but that, that part's more challenging. Cause like I tell my friends in mechanical engineering and they're like, oh man, if, if someone tried to do that in mechanical engineering, they just get like beaten. Not by like, not by the teaching staff, but like the students would just be like, Mate, can you just like, can you just like calm the hell down? Um, and that, that energy is good and bad, I find. I mean, I mean, it's not bad in that case. It just makes, it makes um, a bit more work on my end. But um, I don't know, students are just intense in CS. Yeah, like, just like, they're intense. Maybe it's because of just how semantic it all is. I mean, like, I think it really does summarize, like, I think the degree is summarized very well is that like, if your code doesn't work, it's you're always wrong. Yeah. Like the computer is never wrong. So I think that like principle is like, you know, inbuilt this sense of like semantics and technicality, which because it's a necessity to like what we do. Yeah, for sure. And I think you're right. And the 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 nature of the there's this article I read, which I think is also really relevant, which I remember reading. It was talking about why, why, is, why is it so hard getting women in software? And they were showing like these graphs of, you can actually like, I read this years ago, so there might be something wrong or change, but they were talking about how in every kind of STEM industry, most of them women are increasing participation across like globally or something like this, and you know, mechanical, civil, electrical. And they were talking about how like, women in um, engineering, women in software um, is actually generally, I think, decreasing over the, the, like, you know, CSE might be doing good at it or UNSW might be or Sydney might be, but like overall it's like decreasing. And they were trying to track the reasons for that. And the hypothesis that this article had, and again, I'm not, I've dug into it a ton, was that um, these changes started happening around like the mid 80s. Um, and they were talking about like what happened in the mid 80s was that personal computers came out and that was when computing started to move itself from a science to a hobby. It's actually really interesting if you like look at your other friends and other kinds of engineering too, right? Who, how many people do you know in electrical engineering 
that spend their weekends poking circuit boards because they can, you know? Like, they, it's, like it's, it's not like a job to them. They love it, but, like, they have... It's not, um, it's not part of their identity. It's not part of their hobbies. Yeah, whereas in, in software, there's so many people that um, just, like, get so into it. You know, they've, like, they've either programmed or they've video gamed. And, and you know, naturally, this is also very masculine, which is part of the problem as well. Um, anyway, I think that leads into some of those intensity things as well, because for a lot of these students, it's not just, like, they're not just here to get a degree. They're here because they're, they're super ingrained, either in interest or identity with, like, the skills we're learning, you know, so it means a lot more to them. And I think that's what I think that's what generates that, just that sheer high level of engagement, and, and just why CSE feels different to other places in engineering. Do you think that the school has like a explicit obligation to try um, improve that situation with like the lack of women in software? Uh, I don't know. I, as I'm getting older, I'm becoming more cautious about how I comment on everything. Um, what I would say is that in my experience, um, change usually is most effective when it's top down, um, in terms of like, and you see this a lot. And again, I'm speaking from, speaking from a lot of stories I've been told around, you see companies in the high 50% female grads, you know, or half the grads are all female. That won't mean a lot if all of their managers are males or all of their managers are males, or if the entire company is run by males. I think... I think one thing that Canva has done really well, just because that their figurehead is a female, yeah. is that that changes a lot of the atmosphere of these places. Um, and it's like something we think about in startup land. Like our startups, our startups three white guys, you know, fundamentally. And it's like if you don't if you don't get the culture right in the first fifty people, you'll like never undo it. You know what I mean? Because if you've got like fifty people and like ninety percent of them are guys, it doesn't matter how many women you hire in from the bottom. Yeah. Um, they have nowhere to go that is as motivating as how like where a guy has to go because they don't have role models and they don't have people who can counsel them and support them and stuff like this so i think whether it's like cse or something else um it, it really needs to be top down and that, that's like a conflict i deal with every day um you know like i like teaching i like my job you know and i like you know i, I like mark chi a lot too but i do ask myself every day like i wonder if the biggest impact we could have on the community is if there were just like two talented women teaching 1511 and 1531. Um, you know, like, because that, that's like, I don't know. I think that helps. Pe people, when people are trying to project where they're going to go, they need to be able to see where they're going to go to an extent. Do you incorporate that thought philosophy in terms of like who you pick as tutors? Or do you just go off of like a, like a merit basis pr predominantly? Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Without, without getting into the whole quota thing, um, I think that I think that the whole merit thing is a very challenging argument because, like, I like I, I grew up in regional Australia, and you know, to just assume that, like, it, people are like I hate quotas and I hate anything that isn't merit based. It's like, why do we have Nuragili? You know, why do we have um, rural scholarships? You know, like we have these things because there's fundamentally. Um, differences in how people's lives have been set up you know and it's like I don't know I don't I don't really have a big problem with like like it I think if I was just like you know what I hate these rural scholarships it is so degrading to think that these rural kids or these regional kids need help you know if you grow up in Bathurst that they're apparently not as smart as the Sydney kids you know so like this is so like offensive that these scholarships exist it's like well like I mean sure but like that's very optimistic like the reality is that 
they usually aren't as capable because they haven't had the same resources, support network and all of this, right? If you look at the numbers. So I think it's like, you know, merit, not merit. It's like, there just needs to be an understanding as part of the process that the people you're looking at um, have had different, you know, inputs that have led them to where they are. So to kind of answer your question directly, um, I try and make sure that there's a reasonable minimum um, of like teaching staff that are women. And that's not that I like, I have a hard number in my head. There are lots of female tutors that I see that I could take that I don't because they just don't seem to have the marks or the experience. Um, but, you know, naturally it's always something that's on my mind and I hope on someone else's mind because statistically, like, if you're just going to pick off merit, then the, the, the scales are weighed to drive more men towards that. Just on that, I think that the... Cause that, because that, that like whole discussion about how you know, rural scholarships kind of give an unfair advantage to like rural kids, it, it's a one that happens a lot in med circles, I know. Like a lot, of, a lot of kids who try to get into med, they're like, I mean, I got the 99.95, I got the like 100 UMAT, but this kid from like, you know, from like Goulburn managed to get in with like an 80 just because he's from Goulburn. I think um, what fuels that is the fact that, and particularly for med, um, they, they accept so few people. It's just ridiculous. Like, they only let, like, 200 in. So for CSE, we, we don't really have that, like, you know, only 200 people will ever become computer science in this year. So because of that flexibility of how many people we let in, um, do you think that, like... It's probably less challenging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, I mean, if, it, if, the, if, the, if the supply is so low, you know, then it becomes harder to say, like, how much advantage should they get? Um, you know, and, like... I, I think there's a lot of people who grew up in cities who don't realize how, how, how much the cards are stacked against people who grew up regionally, you know, and like even rurally too. Cause like they think, oh, you know, well they still have houses, <laughs> you know, they've, they've got schools, they've got teachers, they're good teachers, but it's not about the resources out in those places. It's the, it's the tone. No one cares. Like, you know, I went to a, a reasonably nice school for the area and like, you like literally get like bullied or like physically abused sometimes if people find you like studying during a lunch break. You know what I mean? Like it's like the culture and that is like what breeds a disadvantage. Like I had great teachers, you know, they, they were good. Like I don't think I had some like, you know, drop kick teacher because I was like grew up regionally, but you really have to fight the current to, to excel there. But you're right about like, it can be hard because I think I've seen like rural scholarships. They cut like the ATAR down to like a 95 or something sometimes for like regional kids or like, yeah. and like, you know, I've been through the HSC. I know a lot of city kids and I know a lot of rural kids. And like in that particular case, for instance, I think it's definitely easier to get a 95 growing up in those conditions than it is to get like a 99.9. Just on a side point, like this ATAR system, it's so, I mean, I think I was in, I went on exchange to France and I had to explain to them that we have a system where, it, it like the ATAR judges how good you are, but also how good other people in your school are. And that in like the summation of those two is your final mark. They were like, that's ridiculous. I mean, here it's just like there, they just have it so that, you know, the person sitting the exam gets the mark and that's the final mark. Like, yeah. well, you find, you find all this stuff's driven by necessity and economics again. You know, like most bad systems exist because someone doesn't have the money to spend on a better system. It's the same for teaching. There's a lot of things I dislike about how we have to teach that 
just comes from how much funding teaching gets, you know what I mean? Like either at the school, faculty, uh, uni, legislative, government level, like wherever it falls in the pipeline. Um, I think a lot of bad systems, even like the ATAR, um, bad system, like, you know, imperfect systems are coming from the fact that someone's just like, how do we just easily rank everyone without having to like go through all this paperwork and figure out whether you're good at science or you're good at this, like let's just like remove prerequisites and just be like, easy done, one number. So, but you know, that's like a pessimistic and an optimistic way because I'm kind of blaming systems there, not you know people. I'd say you are like right to do that. I think like especially like during COVID, people are understanding. Maybe not so much here, but maybe like in America and such, they're understanding of these systems of like government and. Oh, maybe like here, maybe in like Melbourne. No, not so much here. They're kind of understanding that like, you know, why the police are controlling my lives. Like the pandemic has really like limited a lot of people, what a lot of people can do. But I suppose we in CS are like very fortunate. We are so lucky. We are ridiculously lucky. We just connect to VLab, get a Blackboard collaborate. Like people doing like architecture or something or like nursing. Like they can't. Not like, even just like this study. I mean, think about life after it. Like my dad's an electrician. You know, he wakes up at 4 a.m. every day and he goes and installs ceiling fans and solar panels and stuff. You know, he has no freaking idea what I do. Like I try and explain it to him. Like he's like, I'm like, he's like, he's like, oh, when are you going to go back to work? And I was like, oh, probably just like never. And he's like, what? <laughs> he's, like, what? he's like, what's wrong with you? He's like, what, you mean you just like sit at home and make money? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I don't get it. Um, but no, I mean, like, this is the thing I think. I, I think it's crazy how weird that, you know, you, me, everyone else that we're friends with and colleagues with, it's like, we just ended up in like this software bubble that pretty much all of us will never really struggle for work, you know, through like really critical years of our life. And during a pandemic when this kind of work leans itself towards that you know like i could right now just be like you know what i'm going to take what little savings i have and go buy some little cottage down in kayama and just work at home and live on the beach and make good money like how crazy is that you know and i haven't worked like that hard in the grand scheme of things like yeah sure i worked hard but like i mean like shoveling cow crap or like being in the mines working 16 hour days it's um it's it's crazy i think all of us will look back at this in 20 years and be like well, that was a wild ride that was like i think weird world this year is definitely going to be the most memorable one for a while because i was thinking about it the other day in my 13 years of school i never had a single day cancelled in my life i went to 13 years of school and the only time i didn't go to school was when i was sick and now i'm in my first year of university and i've only been four weeks and it's crazy to think that it's crazy to think that's what it came to but touching base on COVID I think for me personally um, for someone who doesn't have a strong coding background I think learning online was really difficult at first especially um, like I spent pretty much my whole Com 511 online but even though it was an introductory course it was pretty basic it was still difficult because I didn't know the basics so I had to learn them there and learning it online was hard um, how has COVID affected you in terms of your ability to teach and, I don't know, delivering lectures online and... Oh, it's been awesome. <laughs> I mean, I've spent too many years here, yeah. you know? I don't... <laughs> I've loved not having to come into campus. Um, you can imagine, like, I lived here for two years. I then lived at the village for a year. I spent, like, three or four of those years just working, like, nonstop on, like, student projects. Um, I've seen enough of UNSW for like a while. So I'm really enjoying the gap. 
Um, I also have a very nice desktop at home. <laughs> I spent a lot of money in my younger years when I thought I was a nerd buying like desktop stuff. So it's a lot more comfortable than roaming around CSE on a laptop. Um, but no, it's been great. Like I get so much more done when I'm in control of my time and my space. Um, so I go a little crazy sometimes. I tell people I feel like a dog. Like I, any, you guys ever had a dog? Yeah, I've done. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. you know anyone with a dog? I do know someone with a dog. You've ever been at the house and you're like, we're going to take the dog for a walk or something, and the dog just starts losing it. It's just like, it like goes outside and it's just like sniffing everything. And it's just like, you know, it's just like, you're like trying to hold on to it and it's just like losing it and excitement. That's how I feel every day when I go outside now. Because I don't do anything outside because I'm at home all day. So it's just been repressed yeah, just yeah. to stay inside so I, like, I spend two days inside and then I like go outside at like 1pm I just walk around the block and I'm just like this is like the <laughs> thing in the whole world and like I'm like the tree is so green and like I just like it just you know I'm still finding the balance um, and I'm too busy at the moment to look after myself as well as I should but I, I I like it I like where it's all heading for me personally I feel bad for a lot of people that aren't in lucky situations. Like I share a room in a house with like landlords that I can put up with, but um, you know, you guys have seen the, the rate of mental health issues that have come up, like people who don't like to be alone. I really don't mind just sitting in a box by myself for 12 hours. I find that very peaceful, but um, you know, domestic uh, violence related situations. So I get very worried about how people are doing that we haven't seen yet. You know, and maybe it's, maybe it's overblown, but you know, in six months or two years, we could look back at it and be like, wow, you actually look at the graph now of like suicides or domestic violence stuff. And you're like, okay, that was actually a really, really messed up time. So we'll see. Do you think it's harder for you to teach online or do you think it's the same? Oh, it's the same, I think. I don't really, oh, like, I mean, the best thing is that I can actually like lecture with a second screen. Honestly, like that just like changed my life because it's, you're under so much pressure when you're lecturing and you've got like one screen in front of you. And if you make like one mistake, the number of times I lecture and I can just like quickly Google something over here, yeah. you know, or... It's like Casey Nice that when he vlogs, he, um, he vlogs with sunglasses so he can like... See oh yeah, and I've seen that. I've seen that. I've seen that exact vlog, right? So like, um, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's so much easier doing everything at home. Um, I think the only thing I find really hard is like labs. Like I always, I always take classes in the courses I tutor because I want to keep my ear to the ground, make sure I know what's happening and how the students are feeling. Um, um, but particularly as a casual as well, because you get you know, paid per hour you work, right? Um, if I was full time here, I don't think I would because you wouldn't get any extra, <laughs> like, it's just more work. Um, and it doesn't add that much, but yeah, like labs, like marking students off online is just like, I get so exhausted by it because you're just like, oh, let's talk more, you know, like not be, not having that physical interaction. Um, that's the only thing I find harder. I will say though, I think um, it's quite beneficial that like, there's like, uh, it's like a pro like comp 1531 is like a project based course because in like a lot of these other courses, like, I mean, if it was in person, like maybe like, oh, you could meet like people who you do your shoot with or you can meet people at lectures but like I think online like unless there's like a forced like meeting of like the, the lecturers like I want you people in groups like you're never gonna meet anyone like online you're never, like you never just look at your zoom like who yep. like the list of members in your zoom and you're like I want to be friends with that person I'm gonna <laughs> search them up on Facebook like yeah I was talking to tutors about that they were like oh t1 went okay online and I was like it's because they already knew each other you know like they met each other and then they were just going online but like um, like we did force groups in 1531 
Um, that was something I did. I wasn't going to do it. The tutors didn't. I think tutors didn't want it. Um, and I was supportive of that until I did Desin 2000. I taught Desin 2000 and T2. And um, they did they did uh, force groups and it was great because like, what do you, <laughs> what do you gonna do? They all going to hop in a call and just be like, Hey, like, do you want to form a group with like, what do you do? Like you have to force the groups on them. So, but it's been great. Like I love one, five, three, one, because I mean, it's both great for the students and great for me because you're adding another layer of support, you know, and it's something that we should probably like even look at doing more in other courses or even, um, I've talked about this with UNSW online for a long time as having consultations or help sessions that aren't, aren't supervised. Just be like, hey, here's a collaborate call from to 10, yeah, 8 to 10 on mon Monday and Friday, and you can just drop in and chat. Or you just drop in and listen to other people if you want, because there's always those type A's that come into every call, yeah. and they just like, oh, talk and talk. And you just want to sit there and listen and maybe ask some questions on the chat. Like, um, There's so much untapped potential we haven't figured out yet with this, this online thing. And I take a lot of my inspiration from Richard Buckland. And um, I mean, the big thing that informs a lot of what I see him do is the fact that Every, every solution that you need to find should be student driven in terms of like you can solve nearly every problem with students, you know, like more groups, more chatter, more communities, more ways to communicate. Like if, cause you, like at 700 people, like I can't, I can't save everyone, you know, but if everyone tries to save someone else, like that's 350 me's that I don't have to be, so. Yeah. How do you, you seem like you have a lot on your plate in terms of teaching, uh, lecture in charge, working um, on startups. How do you manage your time? It's uh, a good question. Um, I, I, I do have a lot, and that's, that's not something to be proud of. I have too much on my plate. Um, I get it done, but it's, it's too much. But the, the way I generally operate is that there are different types of work some work is really creative. Some work is not creative, but very complicated. Like you need to focus a lot. Um, some work's very manual. Um, and I just try and be very careful about how I stagger that throughout the day. So like there's a lot of work I can do on my laptop, right? I never do that work at home, no matter how much like I, I like want to or how much people are asking me for it. Like I'll wait till I'm on a train or I'm on a bus or I'm like on a plane, not a plane, but, you know, <laughs> like until I'm like somewhere else and I'll do that then yeah. um, because I kind of have that model of work, which is like, you know, you're, it's like all your work is like that big cup with like big rocks and little rocks and sand and stuff. And it's like, um, and you have to be careful about the type of work you do too. Like that's the reason I don't take more shoots, for instance. I only have so many hours in a week that I can be like this with you guys, right? Like, right. Other, like there's other times you catch me and I'll just be like sitting here like, oh, I like, like talking to you, but like, I'll just be like, yeah, just, just, just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, it's just like balancing that because I, I don't know, I think that I think that people mistake their capacity for work as like their capacity for certain types of work, you know, like, um, so I, I just try and fill my time up with different kinds of things and make sure that I'm distributing that out and, you know, doing things at times that suit. Um, yeah, just knowing yourself really well. I mean, one thing that I think is really good is just pushing yourself as well, because the more you push yourself, the more you start to understand where your limits are. And if you understand where your limits are, you understand how to like break up your time. I think maybe we'll wrap up with maybe a few more questions. And I think this one's really interesting is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received or something someone's told you that's stuck with you 
over the years. Best piece of advice I have ever received. Um, I actually haven't really thought about that question, but I can think of a few. Um, there's like, I mean, Scott Farquhar, who's probably like one of my favorite people, actually. He's like Kosi Overlassian. I don't know if you guys like know of him, but he did a seminar in here um, in 2014. And there was like 10 people in here. It was super cute. Um, and he gave so much good advice, probably like the best best seminar I've ever been to, really. And he's just like literally sitting at the front. Um, he talked a lot. I mean, one thing I thought about with him a lot was he was just talking about how um, just because people are really good for your company at a certain scale, it doesn't mean that they're good at every scale. And just understanding that like there's no such thing as a good person, there's only like an appropriate fit. That's been something that's on my mind a lot because everyone has good and bad tendencies. I think I ranted about this in a 1531 notice once, um, like a week or two ago, but like, yeah, <laughs> don't read <remember>. it. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, um, that's a big thing, just understanding that no one's like, good or bad, just people have different uses. But probably one of the best pieces of advice I've ever been given is if you can do something for free, do it. You know, just like, it's so easy to just say something nice to someone. You know, like I, I send emails to students all the time and it's like, if, if, you, if you think something positive, how hard is it to type a sentence and say like, you know, thanks for taking the time to reach out. Like, um, I, I did this with the old dean of engineering was he came down to the Sunswift workshop once and took a photo with the car. And I was like, I had like a photo frame at home, like one of those crappy big W photo frames. Um, and I just like, I was like, oh, I'll do this in the next two weeks. And one time I was just driving past big W and I just like popped in, printed out like a 10 cent photo, just like slapped it in a frame and just like dropped it up at his office. It's like a photo of him and his son with the yeah, solar car. Yeah. And it's like, think about like, it's like an amplification, right? Like think about like the, the input output effort you put in there like it's ridiculous um it's ridiculous how much of an impact you can have with m little things all the time yeah. um so just and this was a business guy this was like a real you know um snake oil salesman business guy but it was like good advice right like there's so many easy there's so many easy wins that take no effort at all um you know like a, a good example is like um uh i know that cse sock people running for election right now um, I don't know who some of them are just because I talk to people. And it's like, I've talked to a couple of them since and it's just like, just like wishing them luck with the election. It's not like I'm lying. It's not like I'm, you know, trying to manipulate people. It's just like, we all think that, right? Like we all want good things for people. But just taking that time just to say like, good luck for the election. Like they know you're, you know about them. They know you care about them. It's like, that probably has a bigger impact than the time it took me to just say it, so. This, uh, what you just said might answer my next question too, but what's the best advice you could give a student studying CS or comp or anything under the CSE umbrella right now? Uh, probably just the same advice I give to everyone, which is like, just remember that your life's bigger than all of this. You know, like everything's in service to a broader agenda. If you think, like, if you think your aim in life is to like, be a senior engineer at Google, it's like, you're probably not thinking big enough, right? Like you wanna be a good, you wanna be a good family member, you wanna be a good parent, a good partner, you wanna like be healthy, you wanna save money and go traveling, like um, just remember like life is bigger than like all of that's in front of you. Cause I think the biggest thing that makes me sad is just the sheer amount of like stress and anxiety that most people put themselves through a lot of the time, you know? And it's like, it'll all be fine. You know, everything will be fine, just like, de-escalate de de everything in your head as much as you can and like look for people who want to support you through that because um, 
I don't know if that made any sense. No, I think, I think it makes perfect sense. I think it's really good advice too. So I think we should start wrapping up because I think we've been talking for almost two hours now. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we planned to go for one hour, so that's pretty good. And I don't want to get kicked out of this room. So I think we'll uh, wrap up the podcast. So thank you guys all for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much to Hayden for coming in and being a special guest. Um, and we'll catch you guys all next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.